0: Facebook is a large multi-user application. Scaling Facebook was different than scaling a single-user application, such as an e-commerce store or a search engine. A social network is faced with unique infrastructure scalability challenges, as well as subjective questions around user communications, privacy, and content. Pedram Kayani worked at Google before joining Facebook in 2007. In his years at Facebook, Pedram worked on infrastructure, internal tools, and management. He became deeply familiar with the company culture and its operations. Pedram joins the show to talk about how Facebook has scaled and the lessons that he took away from his time there. After his time at Facebook, Pedram joined Uber, where he worked as a director of engineering for four years. Uber is another multi-user application with a very different set of constraints. At Uber, Pedram worked on several projects, including Uber's push into China, which he describes as an intense, competitive experience. Pedram is able to contrast the culture and scaling processes of Uber, Facebook, and Google, and it made this a rare opportunity to see how three different high-performing companies build software differently. I hope you enjoy the episode. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native... They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2I has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2I staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2I to learn more about G2I. Thank you to G2I for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2I. Pedram Kiani, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about your time at Facebook, as well as your time before Facebook at Google, and your time after Facebook at Uber. But let's start with Google. Before you joined Facebook, you did work at Google, and when you were there, you worked on Orkut, which was an early social network developed at Google. What were your early lessons about social networking that you learned at Orkut?
1: For me, Google was the first job I had outside of college, and it was cool because this was the first time I was writing code that people were actually using. And Orchid was used heavily within Brazil and India and in some other countries as well. And seeing simple features like groups that connected people who were geographically distributed around the world actually discuss and debate and had meaningful inter- interactions with each other was really eye-opening. I mean, it became really addictive to me that I could actually build things that people were using. So that's on the social side. You know, On the technical side, the thing that I learned was that you know, when I joined Orchid, they were actually built on top of uh, my uh, SQL Server, which is Microsoft Technologies, and a bunch of Microsoft technologies. And SQL Server is kind of like the kitchen sink of databases. And we were having a hard time getting it to scale. There's only so many tweaks and things that we could do to actually make it work more efficiently for us before we decided that we have to actually Rewrite the whole backend in C++ on top of Bigtable, which is Google technology. And so for me learning kind of early on that the technology decisions you make really tie you down. And if you use something that you can't get inside of, that's closed source, that's expensive, then it's really going to limit your ability to scale. That's like the big technical takeaway for me on on Orkut.
0: Were there any broader scalability lessons about infrastructure from around that time, 20, 2005 to 2007, that you learned when you were at Google?
1: I think the big scalability issues, you know, Google was built for scale. And so actually, we had to like reverse engineer how is our product going to work on top of things like Bigtable, which allow you to scan in one direction, but not the other. So for example, your friends list on Orchid, the way that we made it work so you could do pagination forward and backwards is that we had two instances of big table one that paginated in one order and one that paginated the other order and we were able to jump back and forth i mean we really had to at least for me I, I realized that you can't just have this theoretical problem that you want to solve and you can just write some local code you actually have to really think about how all the back-end systems will work together i think the, the more interesting and challenging scalability issue we faced at google at least on Orchid, was that as we went from this obscure project within Google to something that was starting to get real attention with billions of page views, there were these rumors and hushed voices talking about the idea that we would get some kind of founders award, which is a grant that Larry and Sergey gave. And so we went from seven engineers to I think 15, 20 engineers and a distributed site in Brazil and a bunch of PMs and business folks and legal who wanted to be on part of that team. and. We really quickly went from a very fast little team to bogged down team with a lot of people who had to make decisions. So technically, the scalability issues were not what we dealt with. It was more on how teams emerge and and the motivation for people to be on a team.
0: It's funny. I had a, a show pretty recently with Matt Klein from Lyft, who built the Envoy proxy, and he's been an engineer at Lyft for a while. Before that, he was at Twitter, and before that, he was at AWS and he's written a lot about this idea of human scalability problems, that in a fast-moving company, oftentimes the most acute scalability challenges are are not technical in nature, they're human in nature. Can you describe a little bit more what kinds of human scalability challenges you've seen throughout your career?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest scalability issue is when you're part of a very small mission-focused team, everyone's focused on surviving everyone's focused on how do I make my my product work how do I make this thing successful you're not concerned about how big of a slice of the pie you have you just want that thing to, to bake properly you know as teams get bigger as responsibility gets more diffused as people start to perceive that there is a lack or a, a, a you know s- scarcity of rewards they start to behave differently and you know I've, I've seen and we'll get to this later i've seen at facebook this is handled really well because there's a constant reminder from the leadership all the way through the the leadership chain that what you're going to build is going to be more impactful than the the, the the next performance review for yourself and tying it back to how do people think about their own evaluation and how they think about their career and what are they going to get out of this experience i mean i think that plenty of great ideas have died along the way because people lost sight of the fact that the mission is more important than the individual team members. And if you get the mission right, everyone will be rewarded in terms of credit, in terms of promotions, in terms of the knowledge that they gain.
0: You joined Facebook in 2007.
1: What was your initial job at Facebook? Yes, yeah, so I, I got hired as a general purpose engineer. I had experience back at Google working on some anti-spam and anti-porn tools. So I think there was a hope that I would gravitate towards that work, but there was no mandate that, oh, you have to do this. But I quickly dug into that area and, and started building all kinds of things. And it kind of suited my my nature because I'm naturally paranoid and I worry about the edge cases a lot.
0: Can you say more about that, about your nature? like What causes you to be to be paranoid. There's that classic book by Andy Grove, Only the Paranoid Survive. What are the virtues and detriments of paranoia in the tech industry?
1: I think for me, it was just about thinking about how would people abuse a system as it went from this kind of niche college network to a more wide scale. And you know, when I, when I joined and I was going through the code base, I, w- I saw some, some things that people had written around rate limiters. And I was like, oh, I wonder... In what case would you want to actually bypass certain kind of human uh, limits on posting on other people's walls and stuff like that so I actually started to dig in and find out when these things were being triggered and oftentimes it was someone was trying to promote their band or promote some product that they had in a way that was like really annoying to other people so I just now started to think all the time like okay well how would someone want to uh, To abuse the system abuse their set uh, their friend graph because early on it was just a friend graph and I Kept thinking if this thing becomes successful, it's not just going to be your close friends and family It's going to be people that you're you know part of a community with or or random people that you want to be friends with
0: What were Facebook's early problems with site integrity?
1: So the site integrity team was uh, formed by this guy Jeff Rothschild who saw that there was a kind of a loose affiliation of people working on these problems. And rudimentary rate limiting was our initial way to solve a lot of these problems. But, you know, some of the things that we had to like really start to account for, again, as it went from a, a very exclusive college network to more widespread network is, how do you build frameworks that allow product builders to build our product without actually having to think about this. Because if every product builder has to think about every single abuse scenario, it's just going to be oppressively hard for people to innovate and and build things. So Facebook as a service was initially very nice and clean. There was you know just a profile, and then we added things like news feeds and groups and events. And um, as the surface area grew, we needed some kind of framework that allowed product builders to build their product with just adding a few lines of code and then not having to worry about anything else. And that's that's really what me and my team focused on.
0: There are some canonical problems, integrity type of solutions, like a, building a spam detector bears some resemblance to building uh, site integrity tools for a social network. But I'm also sure there are ways in which the social network qualities of Facebook were completely new, and, and there were completely new attack vectors that you had to solve for. What was new about building tools for detecting problematic behavior across a social network?
1: Yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of things there where, again, in, in email spam, for example, you know the contents, of, or you know the, the structure of the email. Within Facebook, we had messages, we had wall posts, we had events, we had comments in photos, we had photo album titles and description. There was just hundreds and then eventually thousands of different places that you could have text in the site, and then you could actually add URLs in in any of that text. So we had to add protection in, in all kinds of different places, again, in a way that was invisible to our developers and also invisible to our users. So
0: what kinds of APIs do you want to offer to your developers to give them the tools to build their own domain-specific site integrity features?
1: You mean internal developers? So if I
0: understand you correctly, you wanted to build tools that made it easier for for Facebook's internal developers to add integrity to their own internal Facebook applications. Whoa! kinds of tools did you want to build for those internal developers
1: let me i can i can explain this through uh, the first real thing that i built which was a system called black hole and the purpose of black hole was to be able to enter text into it so it had a simple api where you can basically submit text and it will pull out domains urls email addresses phone numbers uh, ip addresses normalize them and then quickly check them against a list to see if there's malicious content in there or something that might be fishy or uh, something like that. And so I built that and I started to go through our product code and find the places where I needed to plug this in. And I saw kind of a handful of different anti-spam things that people put in. Again, we had a rate-limiting system. Some people put things where they built like really rudimentary profanity checks and things like that. And so our our code was littered with, with integrity-related code all over the place. And I cleaned that up. I built a very simple framework called Sentry that allowed you to just basically enter the contents of something that was going to be submitted and then um, configure it through a simple site bar, internal site bar, and say what checks do you want to have run against this content, whether you want to check the text for URLs or just domains or profanity or whatever it is. And so it was a really simple API. It was a a pre-check for submitting and then a check on display time because there are certain things that we couldn't immediately catch at submit time that we later deemed bad and we need to be able to not render and then clean up.
0: One of the more complex problems in modern site integrity is that of finding bots who do not belong on your site. And differentiating from a bot and a human is actually really hard. It's funny because in computer science classes, you learn about the Turing test and you think about this conversation between a person and a a robot and trying to detect whether it's a robot or not. And the domain that we actually have to encounter the Turing test in real life is much more rich. We have fully featured profiles, and these profiles can be trained on other profiles from around the Internet. It's it's a really hard and multidimensional problem, and you add to the fact that some users like to make kind of pseudo-accounts, like the Finsta phenomenon, where you make a fake Instagram to attend events or do things that you want to be pseudonymous. Do we have the tools... To differentiate fake accounts from real accounts in today's internet?
1: When you talk about today's internet, the class of problems around bots and fake agents is much more complex than when I initially was on the team. I mean, we were we were concerned about people creating several fake accounts so that they could play Farmville and you know give each other tractors and things like that. And that was a, a very different kind of problem. You know, the notion of a fake or a real account, it's really it goes along a spectrum. There are people who have accounts that are true reflections of themselves or as true of a digital reflection as you can have of yourself. And then people fudge that line a little bit. They tell half-truths about their age or other things like that. And then you get into the world where people create additional accounts. And then maybe to do things like play Farmville or they want to have a group so that a fake account so they can go to a group that they might ne- not necessarily otherwise want anyone else to know that they're part of, to discuss sensitive topics. And then you go to accounts where one individual may, may create hundreds of accounts, and those accounts are intended to lure other people to become friends with that account, so that they will click through and potentially go to some kind of pornographic site or um, buy certain kinds of products that they thought that was being promoted by a real person. Then you get into, you know, the I think when you know when we talk about the Turing test, you know, there's obvious places where you can fake. The, the turing test when you're a real human who's taken over the account of another human so we had this whole class of 419 scams which is people would hack someone else's account and then now they would exploit that network of trust and message that person's friends say hey i'm stuck in london i lost my wallet western union me 500 dollars and that's a uh, not a scalable attack because again you have to be an individual operator to get someone's credentials and start messaging their friends. But it's a very lucrative attack. Depending on where you live, the $500 is a meaningful amount of money on any given day. One of the things that we used to combat that, we built something called social captcha. And what it was, was when we detected certain patterns like this, like repeated messaging of friends that you might not talk to frequently from a geography, which you don't typically log in from, we would block the account from being able to take any further action until they were able to you know, after being shown a picture of you know so many human faces, identify their friends in those faces, and that's something that if I were to show you a grid of four by four of, of a combination of random people and your friends, you'd be able to pick out your friends. But if I tried to do that, and impersonate you, I wouldn't be able to do that. For us, it was you know we we took something that was a unique property of a social network and turned it into a great superpower.
0: every software engineer writes integrations. Whether we're integrating Stripe, or Slack, or Google, or Facebook, we write code to leverage the APIs and tools of the software world. As an application gets bigger, more and more of these services exist in your app. You have Twilio, and HubSpot, and Zendesk, and Salesforce. You begin to want integrations between these different services, and the amount of integration code you have to write grows and grows. Zapier can simplify the integration process between your apps and services. Zapier is an online automation tool for connecting two or more apps. For example, I can use Zapier to integrate Stripe with Google Sheets, and every time a user signs up and pays for a subscription with the Software Engineering Daily mobile apps, their Stripe email address can be put into a spreadsheet. And Zapier can make that Google Sheet easily import those email addresses into our MailChimp newsletter, Software Weekly. Then, Zapier can make sure that every reply to the MailChimp newsletter sends a message to our Slack. And if that newsletter subscriber is also in our Slack channel, we can send them a message and start a more real-time conversation with them. If you're looking for a single service that centralizes all these integrations into simple workflows called Zaps, Zapier is the easiest way to automate your work. Find out how Zapier can help your software integrations by going to Zapier.com/seDaily to try Zapier free for 14 days. That's Z A P I E R dot seDaily. There's probably a way that Zapier could make your software run more smoothly. And if you are just a technical person, you probably have enough spreadsheets and Gmail accounts and social media management that Zapier could save you some time personally, even if you don't have a business. So check out zapier.com SEDaily right now through November and learn how your API integrations could be managed more easily. Try Zapier for free. Thank you to Zapier for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I had a show recently where I interviewed Kent Beck, who worked at Facebook, and I asked him about why Facebook doesn't use any public cloud technologies, and he said basically it's because public cloud technology just wouldn't scale to Facebook's demands, and it made me more curious about Facebook's internal tools and infrastructure. We, it's just some stuff that we haven't really covered in detail. Can you just give me your perspective on Facebook's internal infrastructure, what it was like to spin up a service and deploy a service, and some of the tooling around releasing and scaling?
1: You know, the we had a dedicated team that did all of our release management, and they allowed us to Iterate incredibly quickly. You know, I think when you talk about, uh, uh, you know, using cloud technologies and building on someone else's infrastructure, I mean, it just, it it can't compare. If you're a small player, it's great because it gives you the ability to um, set up a service very quickly and iterate on your product ideas. But at scale, it's just incredibly expensive to, we were running, for example, machine learning uh, pipelines and retraining models. Thousands of times a day, because we we deal with a very adversarial system. We train a model to learn a, a pattern of, of bad behavior, and as soon as we learn that model, we give signal to the bad actors that we figured them out, and so they change their and their behavior very quickly. So it's it's kind of an arms race, and to run thousands of very large uh, you know training sets to create models every day. On someone else's cloud, they would charge you an arm and a leg. So you have to build your own custom workflows for that. You you want to be able to manage your own um, data pipelines and, and how often you release it. Because from a, an attack going from nothing to affecting thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people can take just a few minutes depending on the type of attack. So we, we couldn't, aside from the cost of paying someone else for this, we, we just couldn't we couldn't take that kind of a hit to our our ability to move quickly.
0: People sometimes assume that Facebook engineering was a carbon copy of Google. They assume that the Google culture was successful and Facebook kind of just copied that. But in reality, the two companies operate much differently in terms of their engineering practices and in terms of their culture how would you contrast Facebook engineering from Google?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they're they're night and day different companies from an engineering standpoint. Uh, Facebook is, you know, incredibly um, bottoms up. You know, as a manager, I couldn't tell people what to work on at Facebook, which was different than Google. But, you know, at Google, I spent a lot of time writing design docs and going through lots and lots of reviews of a design doc before I could actually write any code. Whereas at Facebook, you start working on the product. Pretty quickly, and you know, you document the parts of it that matter for other teams to be able to collaborate and integrate with your with your service. But you know, they did things in, in completely different orders. For example, at at Google, to be able to write in a language or, or you know, in a particular programming language, you had to have a readability review. You had to read a, a very extensive set of documents and conform to a certain style guideline, and you had to have your code reviewed and approved by people who had been on that list. And it wasn't until you were able to deliver kind of something that matched those standards before you were deemed qualified to write code in that language. Whereas Facebook, that was, I actually proposed that to a group of people when I first got to Facebook. I'm like, hey, Google has this awesome thing. It ensures that our code will be consistent. And people are like, our code is definitely gonna be more consistent because we work so closely with each other and we give people really fierce feedback when things are going off the rails.
0: So you mentioned something a little bit earlier about the idea that the Facebook culture includes this this idea that the average engineer, it's conveyed to them how much impact their work is going to have. Can you go a little bit deeper on that and, and explain in more detail what you meant?
1: Yeah. In the early days, we would talk about the fact that there's over a million people using the service for every engineer that we had. So you had a clear sense that you're you have an outsized impact. Um, you know, you could push code when you needed to. I mean, when I got there, diffs were handing out, p- being sent out by email, and you would r-copy your your code to a set of servers. Being that connected to the push cycle, being that connected to a feature going out, you definitely feel like you know having an impact on the the product experience directly. I think that that's a big part of it, the way that we we write our self-reviews and the way our peer reviews happened also, which was all about the impact. You know, How do you get there is obviously important. You can't be a jerk as you're building your code, as you're collaborating with people, but did the things that you worked on have an impact? Did they change some metric that mattered to your team? And were you able to tie those metrics to the larger impact of your organization that fed back into the, the company? and you know that's something that i felt that facebook did incredibly well which is people knew mark's goals for the company they joined the company because of those missions and you know we interviewed to make sure that people wanted to be part of that mission people self-selected out of it and that mission drove what our our goals were and our senior leaders made sure that they were able to tie what their goals were doing and how that related to the bigger company goals and it and again in the organizations that I was it was effectively done where I knew what I was responsible for I knew what my team was responsible for and at the end of the half I could tell like hey I did a good job here like we we moved this metric it mattered because there are fewer people whose accounts have been compromised we were able to reduce the time it takes for us to do classification which eliminates this whole class of engagement problems that we might be having I mean it was it was i think it was very intentional how how at least senior management all the way down enforced this and as an engineer as a manager as a director i always felt like i was i knew what was going on i knew how i was contributing to the company
0: you mentioned the bottom up element of facebook a little bit earlier how did facebook scale that ability to have engineering be bottoms up, because it seems like at a certain point, it would just get too chaotic. And I can imagine in the in the early days, when everybody's really motivated to get the company to take it public, you know, everybody's got a good amount of equity. So everybody's taking it really seriously. But when a company gets to its later stages, I imagine it's really hard, it becomes harder to have everybody in the company maintain a sense of ownership. Is it possible to scale that bottoms-up engineering process?
1: Well, I mean, I, again, I joined Facebook in 2007. It was 200-ish people total. Actually, the company was very small. And I left in 2014 after it was public. The overall ability for someone to affect change at the company was really a function of a couple of things. One is that we, we really reinforced this idea that Uh, you know, there's a phrase that Facebook code wins arguments. And, you know, if you have an idea and you're not able to win support for it through your peers or your manager, well, we have these things called hackathons. And you could use your, your, you know, spare time or during a hackathon to go and actually build something out, build a prototype for it and show that, hey, this idea is worthwhile. It's actually meaningful in, you know, in whatever the domain that you're working on. So hackathons were an incredible way for us to reinforce the values of the company, which is, you know, people can work on any idea that they want. They need to show that it's a meaningful idea. In a very short period of time, you have uh, you have to turn that idea into a working prototype, which means you have to boil it down to the very basics. And when you think about that, that, that's there's something really powerful about that, which is if you're telling me that I can work on anything at this company or that, you know, my opinions and matter, my ideas matter, well, then now it's up to me to actually really push my assumptions and building something is the best way to push your assumptions. You're like, Hey, this new feature is going to be awesome. Okay, go build it. And when, when you build it and you see like, Oh, actually I didn't think about this and this and that. And your kind of internal distortion field gets uh, evaporated. You see that certain things don't make sense. But then other things that happened at, at, in hackathons that were great, which is, you know, these were self organized events and people would put all their ideas on different wiki, like a, a wiki doc and they would find people across the company who wanted to work with them or wanted people to volunteer for their project. So we were able to get people from all across the company to work together and collaborate with each other very quickly. And again, that, I think that's incredibly powerful because you have an opportunity there to potentially change the course of, of the company. You, you have an idea, you can show other people that it's meaningful and you can buy yourself some, some time to actually explore it more deeply. But as it scaled, you know, the every company, you know, as you go from tens of people to hundreds of people to thousands to tens of thousands of people, the company has to, to change. You know, as a hundred thousand person company one day, not every engineer and PM and designer is going to be able to change the course of the company. And they have to I think they have to recognize that that's the company that they're joining, because if they they really want ultimate autonomy and ability to impact the company, then they should probably go work at a 10 person startup. But then they have to also live with the consequences of a 10-person startup, which is more than likely it's going to fail.
0: Describe Facebook onboarding. How was the onboarding process a key component of the Facebook culture?
1: Yeah. So, you know, onboarding is the first, I think, three days of uh, a new employee's time at, at Facebook. And they brought different people to come in and talk, talk about the values, talk about the mission, give a history lesson of the company. So I was one of the speakers. We had other people like Chris Cox and other folks from across the company who would come and speak. And everything that I talked about was to reinforce the values of the company. And I prefaced it with, hey, look, these are the values that make Facebook great in the mission that we're solving and the problems that we're solving. So move fast, break things, build trust, uh, focus on impact. These are great values when you're trying to build a uh, set of social products where you need to iterate quickly, you need to be able to rely on your teammates that trust you, but you have to be able to make mistakes. You know, the the I think the most important thing that I try to teach people, and I think a lot of people reinforce that and, and people at Facebook hold true, is that innovation and failures are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. So... If you want to be an innovative company, then you have to you have to reward when people succeed, but you also have to be understanding that people are going to fail. And if they fail, we got to learn from that failure. We have to embrace the fact that we're going to fail. Fail hard, fail fast, fail often and place a lot of a lot of emphasis on that. And if we're firing people because they didn't have a great product idea, then we're really going against the, the company culture. So really reinforcing what the values were and also making it clear that there's no hubris here. Like these values work for Facebook. You know, you can't, if you were to transplant the Facebook values of move fast and break things to a company that makes pacemakers, then you'd kill a lot of people. And we really, at least w- when I spoke about it, I, I made made it clear that like you may have came, come from a Google or an Apple or even an IBM or a company that had different company values. No one's saying that those values were bad. They work in the context of that company. But now that you're here, understand that this is the company that this is the way that this company works. And you know, I, th- I think that that onboarding experience and then on also boot camp for engineers are two incredible things that allowed Facebook to maintain a, a very important cultural identity as it again, went from tens to hundreds to thousands and tens of thousands of people.
0: After Facebook, you worked at Uber. What are the new scalability challenges that you encountered at Uber that you had not seen at the previous companies?
1: Yeah, you know, it was interesting because at, at Facebook, I worked on site integrity and site integrity and the growth team, we kind of had competing interests at all times. And actually, I was really good friends with the lead, the edge lead of the growth team at, at Facebook, always oh, sat next to them. We made sure we did our planning together because we wanted to work together. And then when I went to Uber, instead of working on security or spam or anything like that, I went to run the engineering side of growth there. And so it was, I mean, it was a completely different beast for me. Uber as it scaled was all about the local markets. There are restrictions and there are regulations and there are uh, specific challenges on a city by city basis. And so you can't build one software platform and just release it to the world. Every city launched required some kind of customization, whether it be in how we did local advertising, local messaging, integrations with background tracks, or in certain countries, credit cards were not prevalent. So we had to build debit card solutions. I mean, it was very challenging just to launch a city and assume that uh, you, you couldn't launch a city and just assume that it would just perfectly work. You had to be able to uh, adapt to every single city.
0: What was the strategy for building out those specific regional teams for growth markets. So, you know, because you, you were, as you were in charge of the growth team, uh, the growth engineering team, you had to build out these specific regional teams for, for growth in markets like China and India. What's the average strategy for, for setting up a service in one of those markets when you are going to have these region-specific needs, like setting up debit card support or Uh, specific regulations
1: I think it's a function of how big of a market it is obviously China and India are are massive markets so you're gonna want to invest a lot there and then you also have to look at the obstacles there many of the services that uber relied on like Google Maps doesn't work in China so we had to integrate with local providers there and as you experience the product in the United States, this is a magical thing. You open this app, you push a button, a car shows up, you get your destination, and you walk out. You don't think about anything else. And in other places where that's challenged by, you know, CDNs not working and not having local maps and not having a credit card on file, we realize that you know these these markets needed engineering. And so, in the case of India, we we built a local engineering team from scratch because we needed to build a lot of custom solutions in india because for example car ownership is not as prevalent there for a class of people who we we thought could be good drivers for the service so we had to build vehicle leasing solutions and other things for them to be able to get on the platform at scale you know we didn't build an engineering team for every single sub region as in like a, an engineering hub there because that just get too hard to manage so in a lot of cases we decided that we're going to have engineers doing rotations engineers and pms doing rotations visiting the city teams seeing what are the challenges that our uh, local city teams are having and you know the local hub actually has people who onboard drivers and handle rider and driver complaints and they have to speak the language they have to understand about the local regulations whether it be how vehicles are inspected and Anytime something would be really far out of the norm for the regular use case at Uber, we'd have to send in an engineering team to make sure that our tools worked for for those, those folks. And then we had to build in the right kinds of checks and balances to make sure that as your products area of all your tools increases, that any one tool going down could have a detrimental effect to one city. And you need to be able to track that in the sea of hundreds of tools. GitLab
0: Commit is GitLab's inaugural community event. GitLab is changing how people think about tools and engineering best practices. And GitLab Commit in Brooklyn is a place for people to learn about the newest practices in DevOps and how tools and processes come together to improve the software development lifecycle. GitLab Commit is the official conference for GitLab. It's coming to Brooklyn, New York, September 17, 2019. If you can make it to Brooklyn on September 17th, mark your calendar for GitLab Commit and go to softwareengineeringdaily.com commit. You can sign up with code COMMITSED, that's C-O-M-M-I-T-S-E-D, and save 30% on conference passes. If you're working in DevOps and you can make it to New York, it's a great opportunity to take a day away from the office. Your company will probably pay for it. And you get 30% off if you sign up with code COMMITSED. There are great speakers from Delta Airlines, Goldman Sachs, Northwestern Mutual, T-Mobile, and more. Check it out at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit and use code COMMITSED. Thank you to GitLab for being a sponsor. uber to me those early growth years it sounded so just hard i remember seeing matt Ranny, who was a very senior engineer at uber give a talk he gave a talk at qcon about you know it was like how uber managed the the growth of, of services from 500 to 2000 and how they managed the growth of engineer count from 200 to 2000 or something like that in just a couple of years and he just looked exhausted like i saw him in person I see, he just looked exhausted and I, I remember interviewing him later on he sounded exhausted and i would i couldn't imagine anything else you know you're this is like a, a move fast and i guess it's sort of like the pacemaker situation where you almost have no choice but to move fast because this service is in such high demand and if you mess it up it it really is it really does have that level of sensitivity like a you know a heart rate monitoring device or something so in an overwhelming engineering job like that. How do you
1: avoid burnout? Uh, 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 running. <laughs> I used to run three to six miles every morning as a way to clear my head. You know, I'm kind of half joking there, but really being able to carve out time for yourself was really critical for me. I'd never been in such a high intensity period of, uh, my career for such a long period of time I've, I've worked hard and long but for bursts like one month two months at a time never four years at a time and you know it, it was um you know it was a it's a stressful job when you're when you're building out a service like that and when the service is growing so quickly and the demand is so high and the sensitivity as you said is very high because when your service goes down drivers aren't making income riders are sitting on the side of the road people are are, are stranded somewhere and so we took our, our job really seriously there was an incredible amount of intensity that you felt when you tra- talked to Travis and other leaders in the company when you met with drivers i mean i took an uber every single day for for 4 plus years and you know you talk to the drivers and you get a sense of like what the impact that's had on their life and at least for me that was that was really really eye opening that we're building a service and people are actually making their livings off of it. That was helpful for me. I was relayed that to my team, but it was stressful. I mean I started my my team was 20 people and right before we we exited from China, I'd grown that team to about 250 people in about two and a half years. And managing that scale on an organizational level is like very challenging. Hiring that many qualified managers is is also really hard. But you have to just assume if you're working in that kind of space, something that's growing that that much, you're going to have stress associated with it. You want to hire really great people. You want to find good friends within the company that you can actually talk to when things are getting tough and who can just help boost your, your energy. And that's you know really critical is find time on your own to, to make sure you're, you're mentally healthy. So exercise and other things like that. Find a support network within the company and then just always tie yourself back to what is the mission of the, the company and and find people who you are inspired by and you trust within the company that can really help boo you when the you know, when the, the the waves get really rough.
0: Do you have any specific memories of the waves becoming particularly rough and having to, to ride those waves out? You know,
1: when we got into China in a big way, that was really overwhelming because You know, it wasn't just the the growth team. The growth team was doing a lot of work there. I mean, we were rebuilding everything from the ground up in terms of our payment integrations, uh, fraud detection, map integrations, you name it. We had to, like, either build it or work within the company. And, you know, it was was an all-company effort from, you know, the 100-plus engineers on the China team all the way through our, our infrastructure team, our project managers, our CTO, everyone was hands-on involved in getting us into a data center there so we can handle the scale. And the amount of money that we were burning through every week to operate in China and the, the incredible growth rate, I felt this in, incredible amount of responsibility on my shoulders, as did a lot of people. And that was for me, I mean, it was it was very stressful, but it was also incredibly rewarding also to see what we had built. I think that is the, the hard part to see from the outside is you see it's a stressful environment, fast-paced company, but the internally having this knowledge, like, look what we built six months ago. This thing didn't exist. These people weren't using the service. We didn't have this many drivers on our platform. And now that we've done all this hard work, it's there. That was just, I mean, it's it's beautiful. I, I wouldn't trade any of the stress that I had during the, the time working there if I, I couldn't keep the memories of, of what we did.
0: Yeah, well, Uber was well rewarded for that a into China, the outcome was was quite a windfall. So kudos to you. Uber was using public cloud in its early days, correct?
1: I think so. I wasn't there in the super early days. So they might have been using a public cloud before I was there.
0: Okay. So when you joined, what, what was the infrastructure like?
1: Most things were running internally on, you know, machines that we configured ourselves inside of other people's data centers. I'm I'm sure there were certain tools that were being run on public clouds, but a lot of the stuff that we dealt with internally was not.
0: It's pretty interesting that you've been in the tech industry for for a pretty long time, a pretty long recent time, and you managed to kind of thread the needle to avoid companies that have... you know, invested a lot in public cloud. It's 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 unique because most of the 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 engineers who I talk to have spent some significant time working in a public cloud environment. Have you spent much time communicating with people who have been working a lot in public cloud? Do you have any perspective for how working in a private cloud environment differs from working on public cloud infrastructure?
1: When I was right before the Instagram acquisition. I was in communication with their head of engineering, Mike Krieger, because they had some some spam related questions that they needed uh, help with. And so um, actually me and a couple of people from my team went over there to start talking to them and say, like, oh, how can we help you? Because I'd been instructed by someone within the company to go help them. And I didn't know why I was being asked to help them, but they were built on AWS. And then we had a period of radio silence and then I found out that we acquired them. So some people on our team helped actually onboard them onto. Facebook technology and and move them over from a public cloud. I mean, as a, um, I guess, retired slash person on sabbatical, as I'm building my own projects, I'm evaluating which cloud to put my stuff on. But I haven't had direct experience building anything on it other than the companies that we've integrated with.
0: Within Uber, you worked on growth, and then you worked on developer productivity. So the developer productivity, I believe, is much about developing tools to allow developers to work more specifically. What was the Uber internal tooling like and how did it compare to Facebook's internal tooling?
1: Well, that's a really broad question. question. I guess I'll, I'll target it towards one thing, which is when you're a Facebook engineer and you build a product, for example, like a new version of Groups or a better photo sharing uh, experience, you can directly experience that, that product as a consumer Uber is a marketplace. So there's a driver side of things, there's a rider side of things, there's a, um, actually a marketplace team, there's pricing, there's a lot of different pieces there. And it's actually very hard for an individual engineer to test their feature in a vacuum. So, it's for a very basic need for our engineers, was to be able to take a feature and then simulate a set of trips and see how that feature would behave, whether it's a user-facing feature like something in the mobile app or a backend feature, and you need to be able to run a series of, of trip events against that thing. So those are some of the kinds of tools that we built, which is to make web-based tools that allow engineers to be able to exist in their own uh, small ecosystem against you know a pretty complicated uh, surface area with a lot of subsystems. Since your
0: time at Uber, as you said, you've, you've taken a step back to do some consulting and take a break from being in the middle of the storm in a high-growth company. In that time reflecting away from the high-growth company world, do you have any reflections on working at these types of companies that, that you've just acquired thanks to the benefit of some time away?
1: Yeah, lots of, uh, lots of reflections. You know, I've been lucky to work at some very mission focused companies. And I think that the most important thing, at least for me, was being able to relate to my team, how what we're doing affects the mission of the company. And I've been blessed to work with a lot of really incredible leaders who have been able to create this kind of how do you say it? Like an aura. Like one of like the, the best leaders or best examples of leadership that I saw at Facebook was this guy, Jay Preak. And so he heads infrastructure. And Jay was really good at letting people know what mattered to infrastructure and what mattered to him. So even when he wasn't in the room, people would make decisions based on like, what is infrastructure supposed to do? Our infrastructure is supposed to scale. It's supposed to be reliable. It's supposed to become affordable. It's supposed to be something that our product folks don't have to think about inherently when they're when they're scaling out their services. And he did just a great job of reflecting that. And I think that that's a a great model of of leadership. You know, that's that's one really big takeaway that I've seen at these companies. Like when people do that effectively, things just go right, even in high stakes environments. My manager at Facebook, this guy, Artur Bahar, who you had a a guest, Nick Schrock on, he actually managed him as well. Artur was incredible because he showed me a management style that was less about telling people what to do and more about presenting them with hard problems and helping them ask the right questions and asking them the right questions so that they could construct what that future needs to look like, and then holding them accountable for delivering on it. Those are the the big things about leadership that I think I've I've taken away from those companies. And then the rest of it around being able to iterate is about how do you make it so that a small group to a medium-sized group of people can iterate really quickly. And the real important part there is do you build the right infrastructure? Do you write, build the right frameworks, and do you have the right tools so that people can try a lot of things out quickly? Like, can I get more bytes out of the apple every single go around? And that, I think, is going to be a hallmark of you know innovative companies forever, right? If you if you can iterate quickly, if you can experiment quickly, if you can tolerate failure as an organization, then you have a shot. You know, then the rest of it will depend on. Is the idea good? Can the leadership navigate the changes at hand? Can you scale your organization? Can you maintain the right culture and change it when you need to, frankly, to make sure that you're you're building the right company that builds the right technologies that solves the right problems? And you know, as I advise smaller companies, I see them sometimes over optimizing for like the world where they're a thousand person company and really deliberating on things that don't necessarily matter to them yet. And then some companies that are a little bit further along and they've hired and they're in the 100, 200 person range. And they don't have some of the basic the basic things around what does a job trajectory look like for an engineer? What are the competencies that we want to evaluate our engineers against to make sure that they are in their daily execution of their craft? Are they delivering towards what our teams are going to make for the mission of the company? Yeah, there's 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 a lot there. I mean, I think that Having some time away from this and having some time to really think deeply about it gives me a, a better perspective about what these things mean in terms of building great engineering organizations and then working towards an important but a hard mission. You know, I, I don't think that if you can give me an example of a company that's that's built something meaningful and did it done it with no stress, I'll be amazed.
0: <laughs> Do you have any ideas or? Spaces that you're exploring things that might lead to what you build next?
1: Most of what I'm building right now is more of just personal projects for me. I've spent a lot of time looking at the Gmail API. I went from having a personal email and then a work email and trying to be very diligent about how I managed both of them. And just thinking about in organizations, we give people new tools. We give them Slack and we give them Asana and we give them other things like that. But we don't really train them about what it means to manage their communication and their time effectively. I think that there's something there. I don't I don't know ex- exactly what it looks like, but I think that when you take the average college kid, you throw them in a company, you give them access to email and, you know, different documents and things like that, and then you say go do your job, they just by happenstance start to learn habits. And some of those habits are good and some of those habits are bad, but I suspect the thing that that separates the best engineers and designers and PMs and HR people from the okay ones is how they manage their time and attention. I think there's something to be built there. I don't know exactly what it is. If anyone listening has a great idea, I wish you well. And I hope you solve that problem because you'll probably change the course of human history if you can do it properly.
0: Last question. What are the lessons that the rest of the software industry can take away from Facebook?
1: I think that you have to make a company culture that suits what you're building. And again, company culture is not the perks. It's not the free food and it's not the the things like that. It's really like, how do you deal with hard decisions? How do you deal with conflicts? How do you deal with failure? How do you plan when there's ambiguity in the world? And how do you organize people's time and energy? And how do you make sure that you align people's responsibility with the amount of autonomy you're going to give them? And I think that that's really important. I think Facebook got that right. I think a small number of companies have really gotten that right where they built something amazing and they built a workforce where amazing people want to work there for long periods of time. That's really important. I think the other takeaway there is that when you when you build a company, if you center it around the engineering manager, you will quickly create an environment where engineers don't want to work. They may tolerate it. They may be there because they're getting great salary and equity and they see that the company is going to be successful, but they ultimately don't want to be there for a long time. If you create a company culture that's great and you you empower your engineers and your engineering managers to work towards problems together... You can solve all kinds of amazing problems and you can do it in a way that's sustainable that people will want to want to work there much longer than the industry average is what I don't know, two years, three years, something like that. And I think that those are those are really important things. And there's a lot of great companies that get one of those or the other. Not very many that get both of those right.
0: Pedro Kiani, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Podsheets is an open source podcast hosting platform. We are building PodSheets with the learnings from Software Engineering Daily. And our goal is to be the best place to host and monetize your podcast. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, check out Podsheets.com. We believe the best solution to podcasting will be open source. And we had a previous episode of Software Engineering Daily where we discussed the open source vision of for Podsheets. We're in the early days of podcasting, and there's never been a better time to start a podcast. We will help you through the hurdles of starting a podcast on Pod Sheets. And we're already working on tools to help you with the complex process of finding advertisers for your podcast and working with the ads in your podcast. These are problems that we have encountered in Software Engineering Daily. We know them intimately and we would love to help you get started with your podcast. You can check out podsheets.com to get started as a podcaster today. Podcasting is as easy as blogging. If you've written a blog post, you can start a podcast. We'll help you through the process, and you can reach us at any time by emailing help at podsheets.com. We also have multiple other ways of getting in touch on Podsheets. Podsheets is an open-source podcast hosting platform. And I hope you start a podcast because I'm still running out of content to listen to. Start a podcast on podsheets.com.